This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. If you're constantly on the hunt for a good deal, then you need Rakuten. Rakuten is the smartest way to save money when you shop because members get cash back at over 3,500 stores across every category, including fashion, beauty, electronics, home essentials, traveling, dining, and more. You're already shopping at your favorite stores. Why not save while you're doing it? It's a no-brainer. Get the Rakuten app now and join the 17 million members who are already saving. Cashback rates change daily. See Rakuten.com for details. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Your cashback really adds up. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. There are nearly 8 billion people here on planet Earth, and almost 3 billion of those 8 billion, for better or worse, are on Facebook, the social network started by Mark Zuckerberg 17 years ago. It's big. It's powerful. But is it dangerous? In recent months, particularly given misinformation about the safety of COVID vaccines, some people say it is. David Pogue looks at a face-off, rights and wrongs, and Facebook. Facebook is just like big tobacco. Lately, Facebook has been under attack from all sides. Another bombshell story on Facebook. And even from the top. Misinformation. Anyone listening to it is getting hurt by it. It's killing people. I read on Facebook, it's poison. It's got tracking devices in me. It makes cows sterile. I've heard all kinds of things. Coming up on Sunday morning, what can be done about Facebook's misinformation problem? The Doobie Brothers had it all. 
the 70s California sound, and an outsized rock and roll life. As the band hits the road again, Jim Axelrod talks with them about the good times, then and now. A band like ours is a little different than a lot of bands. It's more than a little different when you consider the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame band, the Doobie Brothers, on tour again and back with their first album in years. We're still able to do it and people maybe want to hear us. Oh, they want to hear you. What's kept them running for more than 50 years. Later on Sunday morning. Ah, we've been expecting you, Mr. Bond. Ian Fleming's 007 is back and coming to a theater near you. Ben Mankiewicz talks with actor Daniel Craig about what he insists is his James Bond swan song. You're playing James Bond? Apparently. Wow. Well, yeah, I did not realize that. Bond. James Bond. Daniel Craig is saying Bond Voyage to 007, a role that takes a toll. While I'm filming, I'm a nightmare because I'm sort of in this, like, tunnel vision of work, and I think my wife kind of likes it when he leaves. Why Daniel Craig is leaving and what he thinks about a secret agent successor ahead on Sunday morning. Califasane takes us back to his punk rock roots. Lee Cowan gets a read on best-selling author Anthony Doerr's latest page-turner, covering the sweep of seven centuries. And more on this first Sunday morning of the new month, October 3rd, 2021. We'll be back in a moment. A recent survey from Pew Research finds nearly one-third of Americans get their news from Facebook. Critics worry that some, and maybe even a lot, of that so-called news consists of conspiracy theories and misinformation. David Pogue looks at the challenges facing Facebook. We've gone from having around 150,000 people in the fall to right around 3 million now. When I interviewed Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg in 2005, the company was just getting off the ground. People use the site so much that it's creating a marketplace for advertising. It was still called thefacebook.com. It was still limited to college students. I have no idea what's going on back here. And it was still a little bit casual. Dude, what's up? Dude, you're on TV. How did that Facebook become this? Facebook is just like big tobacco, pushing a product that they know is harmful. Researchers from Facebook, which owns Instagram, repeatedly found that the app was toxic, even deadly, for teen girls in particular. The report shows that the new algorithm that Facebook had would push more and more divisive content because it was driving engagement. Even the president got involved. Anyone listening to it is getting hurt by it. It's killing people. He was referring to one of Facebook's most burning problems, misinformation. Like posts saying that the COVID vaccine causes miscarriages, or that the FDA is tracking unvaccinated people, or that the vaccine is the mark of the beast. None of that is true. 
but people really are dying from misinformation. How often do you see somebody die of COVID? Almost every shift. Like daily, somebody dies? Yeah. Adriano Gaffi is a medical director of the Altus Health System near Houston. This is where it becomes complicated. I mean, His emergency rooms have been systems, overrun right? with desperately sick, unvaccinated COVID yeah. patients. It's a massive binder. And this is just August. Most of these patients refused the vaccine because they'd read bad information on social media. About 80 percent would come from Facebook. I read on Facebook, it's poison, it's got tracking devices in me, it makes cows sterile. I've heard all kinds of things. I mean, when you encounter somebody like that, where are you on the scale of, this person's an idiot, or I feel so sorry for this person that they're this brainwashed? I, I, I feel really bad for individuals because if that is your source, right, it's hard for them to separate reality and what is being fed to them. Do you, do you have any impression of how reading this misinformation online affects the mindset of a patient? It's very powerful that you can see it and feel it in individuals when they come in and they get their swab and they're sick. And some, pe some patients even decline treatment. It, it's so powerful in them that they almost even deny COVID exists in some individuals. Because of what they've read? Because of what they've read. Now, you might be wondering, if bad information is so harmful, why does Facebook allow it? And the answer is, it's complicated. What they sell is user attention. User attention gets sold in the form of advertising. So yes, there is a profit motive. Laura Edelson is a misinformation researcher at New York University. Her studies have found that misinformation sells. Misinformation, in general, gets more shares, comments, likes than factual content. This effect is pretty large. Uh, my recent study found that it's a six-fold uh, effect. So if something is bogus, I'm six times more likely to share it or like it than if it's true? Maybe not you specifically, but in general, it will get six times the engagement. Facebook is a user engagement, a user interaction maximizing machine. That is what Facebook is built to do. Get users to interact with content as much as possible, as often as possible, for as long as possible. As you might guess, Facebook is no fan of Edelson's research. So this summer, the company got tough. Well, the FTC is slamming Facebook for cutting off access to a group of researchers who were studying misinformation on Facebook. In August of 2021, they shut down our accounts. So you're not on Facebook anymore? No, I'm not. I have no place to post my dog pictures. Now, all social media companies have a COVID misinformation problem, but Facebook is nearly a trillion-dollar company with 2.9 billion users a month. Its sheer size makes it special. Facebook is the most powerful media apparatus in the world. New York Times tech columnist Kevin Roos has written extensively about misinformation on Facebook. Why don't they just say, oh, sorry, we'll have our amazing artificial intelligence just wipe misinformation off the platform? Well, it's, it's not as easy as it sounds. For one, a lot of people disagree about what misinformation is. They have had to walk a very fine line between removing genuinely harmful content from the site while also, you know, not engaging in what they would consider censorship. 
Facebook declined our request for an interview, but it heartily rejects the notion that it's killing people or that it's doing nothing to fight COVID misinformation. The company points out that it has deleted over 20 million false posts, shut down the accounts of 3,000 repeat offenders, put warning labels on 190 million questionable posts, and promoted factual vaccine information by building, among other things, a vaccine finder to help people get their shots. In a statement, Facebook added, We're encouraged to see that for people in the U.S. on Facebook, vaccine hesitancy has declined by about 50% and vaccine acceptance is high. But our work is far from finished. I want to talk to you about uh, COVID misinformation on your platform. That's a really Finally, as CEO Mark Zuckerberg told Gail King a few weeks ago, maybe the problem isn't Facebook. Maybe it's America. If this were primarily a question about social media, then I think you'd see that being the effect in, in all of these countries where people use it. But I think that there's something that's unique in our ecosystem here. All right. So Facebook says it's doing everything in its power to fight misinformation. But researchers, journalists, and Congress don't believe it. They want Facebook to share its data on how many people are seeing the false posts. And so they were basically saying, you just have to trust us on that because we're not going to show you the data. And there are teams inside Facebook that are working very hard to prevent the spread of misinformation. I think the challenge is that a lot of that data and a lot of that work stays inside the company. So let me play a Facebook advocate. If I were Facebook, I might say, wait, 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 we're supposed to reveal all our internal data? You don't ask that of Coca-Cola or, or Starbucks. Why does that belong to the public? Well, we do ask it of organizations like banks. Banks are incredibly powerful institutions that are a vital part of modern society, but they also have the power to be incredibly harmful. And that's why banks are regulated. And I think we need to move toward something like that for social media companies. Wow. I mean, that's a radical change. It would be a radical change, but I just don't see how the status quo can go on. It is not hyperbolic to say that misinformation on Facebook kills people. I'm just, I'm left wondering where the truth lies. Is it corporate bungling or is there an evil streak to it all? I think there are some people who think, you know, even inside the company who think that this thing has gotten sort of out of control. It's sort of their their version of a Frankenstein story where they built this platform that billions of people use and it's just simply gotten a little out of control. So how will all this end? Both parties in Congress seem intent on regulating Facebook, and the company says that it will make more of its data public. For Facebook, it all means more conflict and compromise. But then, Mark Zuckerberg has been fighting battles over his baby since 2005. The lawsuits and the squabbles, has it it been a a shock to you? Um, It's not really shocking, but it is a little like upsetting, I guess. But I, mean, I guess if you're making something cool, uh, it's just something you have to deal with. And I mean, for as long as you can like maintain that attitude and realize that like we're doing something that's positive and that's the only reason why anyone cares at all, then, you know, I mean, we'll get through. <laughs> Commentary this morning from Dan Bergman, who's just earned his degree from Harvard Extension School and was one of the speakers at this year's commencement. When I was 12 years old, I suddenly learned to think, all at once on a single day. 
Before that day almost no one would have thought that I would ever understand the world around me. I made meaningless noises, waved my arms, and shouted, cookie, when I wanted a cookie. I did not understand the children's books that were lovingly read to me, and had no clear sense of time or death or the other building blocks of this thing we call the human condition. Thirteen years and a college degree later, I still make noises and wave my arms, but now I can type this commentary with one finger, one letter at a time, into a text-to-speech computer and share my thoughts with you. That day thirteen years ago, I worked with a teacher who taught me how to answer questions. She put a pencil in my hand and showed me how to spell out the answers I had chosen by stabbing the pencil through letters cut out of a board. Suddenly, because I was making language and not just hearing it, my mind began to wake up. At twelve years old I had a lot of learning to catch up on, but I was on my way. I know now that a lot of my autism has to do with not being able to get my body to do what my mind wants it to do. My body was horribly disorganized, but the moment my teacher put answering questions within my physical ability, I began to learn and I loved it. And my teachers loved teaching me, and I think there's a lesson there for all of us. Awesome! Nice job! If someone seems like they can't or don't want to learn, look for the physical obstacle and remove it. This applies not just to the millions of people like me who have autism and can barely speak, but to people who are prevented from learning by distance, language or economic pressures. For years, I was classified as intellectually disabled. I think, at least where non-speakers with autism are concerned, there's no such thing. Thank you. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. His epic novel, All the Light We Cannot See, captured the hearts of millions and won author Anthony Doerr a Pulitzer Prize. Now, Lee Cowan tells us Doerr's back with an even more ambitious book. The water is crystal clear this high up in the Idaho mountains. Payette Lake is a glacial wonder that turned the town of McCall into a resort. It's a place known more for boating than books. But its small public library is thriving. It's been here almost half a century, filled with the works of faraway authors and some local ones, too. Hi, guys. Hi. Nice to see you guys. <laughs> yes. Including Idaho's Anthony Doerr. Librarians are totally the heroes in a bunch of different ways. He used to sneak in here and write, back when he and his family would drive up from their home in Boise for vacation, and he could blend in with the tourists. But... That all changed in 2015, when Doerr's anonymity was shattered after winning the Pulitzer Prize for fiction. We went to the shelf and got his book, All the Light We Cannot See, and looked at the picture, and we were trying to be casual, <laughs> kind of looking at her in the back, like, oh my God. <laughs> That's the only place an author's famous is in a library. <laughs> all the Light We Cannot See is an epic work of historical fiction. 
It spent almost four years on the New York Times bestseller list. Netflix is turning it into a series. Was it overwhelming? Utterly overwhelming, yes. Uh, I still haven't totally processed, I think, what happened with that novel. It sold more than 15 million copies worldwide. Dorr had been writing for years, essays, short stories, even a memoir, and all got largely positive reviews, but nothing had that kind of commercial success. In fact, it really wasn't all that long ago, says his wife Shauna, that struggling writer pretty much summed him up. Tony was writing a lot of uh, different short stories, and he was getting a lot of rejections and you know, going through this process where, do you think this is ever going to happen? You know, Do you think I'm ever going to be able to do this? So this, <laughs> <laughs> this is all like little bits of the, the lint of the book. Yeah. So the Pulitzer proved he could, but could he do it again? The expectations for his next novel were set pretty high as he sat down to write it. I remember the day I came home to my family and said, what do you guys think about this ridiculous title? It's called Cloud Cuckoo Land, published by Simon & Schuster, a Viacom CBS company. As the name might imply, you'd be a fool to try to describe it in a single sentence. This is actually my editor's questions as she goes through the novel. This needs a bit of a trim, she writes. (laughs) It's every bit as expansive as his last novel, maybe more so, spanning more than 700 years from 15th century Constantinople through present-day Idaho and far into the future of the 22nd century. I'm going to try this big book of everything where I try to cram all my interests and passions into this one novel. Did you ever sit down and think, why did I do this to myself? Yes, it's crazy. <laughs> almost every day. It's, it's got 400 almost little chapterettes, these little short chapters. I've got 105 characters with names in the novel. You can see Zeno intersecting with Seymour and Anna. So many, he drew this diagram to help visualize his literary labyrinth. By trying just for my own mind to braid their intersections all together spinning plates on poles. I'm trying to spin all five of these plates in the reader's mind all the time and keep touching them so that the reader doesn't forget what's happening. There were at least five times where he's like, I can't do it and I'm I'm gonna trash it. And I said, you, you can't. I need to find out what happens. Like, you know, you gotta keep going. Across hundreds of pages, jumping from one century to the next, one character to the next, the novel's path is intricate. And yet Doerr's thousands of tiny details are dependable breadcrumbs that keep the reader from being lost. I don't think of myself as all that good yet. I like to think I'm getting better at my work. Come on, you really don't. You've got to think you're pretty good. No, I genuinely don't. Language is just this system all the time of failing. You're almost expressing what you want to express, but you can't quite get there. And so writing itself has this humility built into it almost for me. Growing up in Cleveland, Dorr started humbling himself with writing at an age when most of us were just starting to read books with more words than pictures. I had spiral notebooks and I write, wrote stories into them. And even at a younger age, I would commandeer mom's typewriter and type stories about my toys. But how old were you when you were writing these little stories? Probably eight and nine. I remember just the power of dialogue. I remember really clearly, like you can hit quotation marks and then your characters can say swear words and stuff. That seemed really powerful. His mom was a science teacher who went to great lengths to show him the wonders of the natural world, a fascination that has never left him or his writing. Your problems seem a little less important when you're in the woods. I think we all need that sometimes. Much of the setting for Cloud Cuckoo Land was inspired 
by the wild landscapes around McCall, bristling with ponderosa pines that seem as old as time, but, as he hints in the novel, are no longer as ageless as we once thought. The big headline on climate change is it's happening faster than scientists predicted. These are real issues that we are dealing with in our lifetimes and our kids are really going to have to deal with. So I feel like it's really a novelist's responsibility. If this is the largest issue of our time, then it would be irresponsible of me for not to represent it in the novel in some way. It's not overt. The vanishing of nature is a lot more subtle in his novel than the vanishing of books. That's his other big worry. The spine of his tale is an ancient Greek text that somehow manages to survive through the centuries by those who nurture it. And perhaps that's why Dorr dedicated the novel to librarians everywhere, those he calls the caretakers of human knowledge. A library is this series of portals, really. This idea that you could live multiple lives through books is so powerful that... You don't just have to live through your own experience. You can live through the experiences of others in really intimate and deep ways by reading. On the page, it comes off as pretty serious. In person, not so much. Yeah, I do have a lot of books to carry around. That's super kind, Meg. Thanks. He rarely tells people he's a novelist. Seems too high and mighty, he says, especially to his twin boys about to head off to college. What do your kids think of it all? What do you think? <laughs> we really try to just build a, a family that we don't talk about all this stuff that much. I mean, have they read your books? I don't think so. Yeah, <laughs> I want to be the dad who like shoots hoops with them after dinner, and not yeah. the dad who's like, I have to work on my sentences now. <laughs> you know? like, Anthony Doerr is what you'd hope a novelist would be, capable of linking past with future, the mundane with the grand, reminding us all of our very temporary place in a story we hope is never-ending. Our lives are limited, but hopefully the species is not, and so that if we can continue to carry and transmit culture and this place to the next generations, that's the best we can do. God. James Bond is back. Daniel Craig stars in the soon-to-be-released No Time to Die, the latest film in the long-running franchise. Ben Mankiewicz spoke with Craig about his final turn as the famed British agent. Daniel Craig's body of work is impressive. The name's Bond. James Bond. There's his signature role, James Bond, and more than 40 other movies over a three-decade career on screen. But for the 53-year-old British actor, what matters most is what comes next. I don't really look back. I don't really kind of spend my time looking over the movies I've done or even watching them. One film, though, has stayed with him. Road to Perdition, made before Bond. This is the scene I wanted to watch with him, as Craig and Paul Newman go toe-to-toe in what proved to be Newman's last appearance in a feature film. We lost a good man last night. You think it's funny? Try again. 
I'd like to apologize. I look back on it now, and I look back at it, and I just go, my goodness me, that was a moment when things changed for me. Not about my status or my recognition. Something within me went, I'm allowed to sit at this table. My apologies. Nineteen years later, his seat is secure, and then some. Just before the pandemic, the Museum of Modern Art celebrated Craig's career with a retrospective of his work. I mean, as an artist, what does that feel like? I'm a little bit bemused, to tell you the truth, because it felt, it genuinely feels like I started doing this yesterday. Craig's mother, an art teacher, encouraged her son to follow his dream of becoming an actor. He started on the stage, but from an early age, he was drawn to the big screen. I still feel these are slightly sacred places. I can never help myself. There's sort of, if I have a church, this is it. Because as a kid... You walked into a space and they were going to turn the lights out and something magic was going to happen. You have no idea what goes on with me and Francis. Over 30 years, Craig has demonstrated his range. He can be sensitive as artist Francis Bacon's lover in Love is the Devil and both ruthless and charming in Layer Cake, the clever English crime drama that alerted producers he was capable of something much bigger. You're playing James Bond? Apparently. Wow. Well, yeah, I did not realize that. James Bond. Playing Bond was a big step up for Craig. I don't know about the rest of you, but I'm not celebrating. Just the year before, when he heard Steven Spielberg wanted him to play a member of an Israeli hit squad hunting terrorists in Munich, Craig didn't believe it. Get a call. Steven Spielberg wants to meet you in Paris. Can you be on a train and be there this afternoon? I'm like, yeah, okay. I'm think- My friend who's telling me, ah, it's not Steven Spielberg, it's Steven Spielman or someone. It's like some dodgy director. In, in, and I'm like, Steven I'm, Seagal. Uh, Steven Seagal. Yeah, Most recently, he showed off what his Bond co-star Judi Dench calls Craig's wicked sense of humor in the black comedy Knives Out. No. Would you mind doing the rest of this interview in the Knives Out accent? I would doubt if I could. <laughs> they want to do another one, and I'm like, I'm terrified because it's going to take me as long to relearn the accent as it did last time. Daniel Craig is comfortable saying no. After playing Bond in four movies, he said he was done after the last one, Spectre, from 2015. But he changed his mind, returning for No Time to Die, the 25th movie in the series. Business-wise, he's been good for the brand bringing in nearly $3 billion worldwide at the box office. Still, when he was first offered 007, he said no. I did, yeah, yeah. I did. I said okay. I couldn't possibly do that. But you, you changed your mind. The general consensus would was you'd be a fool not to. But if he was going to take it, he wanted to play Bond his way, a darker and more sober 007 than the heavyweights who came before, men who insisted on their martinis shaken, not stirred. When I got to a line in the, in, in the script that said, you know, when he ordered a, a vodka martini and the guy says, shaken up, stirred, and he said, and it said in the script, do I look like I give a mm-hmm. uh, I went, I'm in. And when Craig is in, he's all in. Married to the actress Rachel Weiss, Craig acknowledges his total commitment to playing Bond can make him a bit miserable. While I'm filming, I'm a nightmare because I'm sort of in this like tunnel vision of work and I don't and I'm sure that's the character you know they talk about do you take your work home with you I think you always take your work home with you it's very difficult not to when you're doing very long hours and you're working on something for so long so there's that that person's around I think my wife kind of likes it when he leaves (laughs) so we finished filming back to kind of relative normality 
Bond began with Sean Connery. Next came George Lazenby for one movie, then Connery again, followed by Roger Moore, Timothy Dalton, Pierce Brosnan, and Craig. So, who's next? Pierce Brosnan has suggested that whoever the next Bond is be a woman. Uh, Idris Elba's name has been uh, floated. That would be, uh, he would be wonderful. He's a tremendous actor. James Bond is going to be played by someone else. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll watch the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you vested in that decision? Do you care? I care it's someone good. I want them to be great. I mean, I think there's two things you've, you know, they're sort of like, I think that we need to have better parts um, for women. And I don't think a woman playing James Bond is the right way. It's, let's write a brilliant part for a woman. I'm confident in its future, and I think whatever happens, whatever the casting goes, whatever, whatever happens to it, it's going to be okay. Along the same lines, uh, you're not James Bond, you're Daniel Craig, you're a, a talented uh, actor. Is there one part of Bond relate to you? Do you drive recklessly so much so that your wife, like, won't ride with you? Do you have, is there some little bit of Bond uh, in you? None of those things. <laughs> uh, I don't go skydiving at the weekend. You've ever flown one of these things before? Nope. No skydiving. But for Daniel Craig, things are definitely looking up. As Bond and beyond. And now that it's now come to an end, I've never tried to do jobs as a reaction to it. I think that's another thing, I sort of go and do something that's completely the opposite. I've just tried to con- continue doing the job, work with the people I want to work with and, 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 and do the work. So, you know, fingers crossed, I'm going to be able to do other things. You know, Connery did five, he left, then he came back, right? None? Not, no chance? No, we're good. We're good? We're good. <laughs> we're wrapped? Yeah, we're wrapped. <laughs> we're good, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Please join us when our trumpet sounds again next Sunday morning. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Milli Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Milli Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.